If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, we'll be travelling back to prehistoric Britain with the broadcaster and academic Alice Roberts. Many of you will know Alice as a presenter on TV programmes including Coast, Time Team and Digging for Britain. She joined me to discuss her new book Ancestors, which delves into Britain's prehistory through the stories of seven burials and looks at what we can reconstruct about this period using new scientific developments. Your new book, Ancestors, explores the prehistory of Britain through seven burials and its funerary sites that you're looking at here. Why are they particularly revealing for this era? What kind of things might you find in a prehistoric grave and what can they tell us? Oh, graves are a complete treasure trove very often of of information and you get all sorts of different information in graves. So some of the later graves that I've looked at in the book, thinking about graves like that of the Amesbury Archer, for instance, are absolutely stuffed full of cultural artefacts. So what we've got is a brilliant time capsule and a, a little microcosm of that Copper Age culture. It's absolutely wonderful. 
But there's also a treasure trove of information in the bones themselves. And the book is also about how we're extracting more and more information from those bones. And for me as a biological anthropologist, it's just been astonishing how that science has developed over the last 20 to 30 years. I definitely want to ask you more about those advances in science later. But let's talk a little bit about prehistory first. So I think for a lot of people, this might be fairly cloudy and foggy in their minds if we're talking about the British Isles. What do you think that the public's perception of Britain's prehistory is? And and what misconceptions do you come across most regularly? Yeah, I mean, prehistory is, I, I, I find it intensely interesting because obviously it is before written documents. And the only way that we can approach it is through archaeology, through the uh, material remains of of ancient cultures through the physical remains of our own ancestors and um, through traces of uh, constructions and later on buildings. So you are left looking at those traces in the ground and there's there's almost then a kind of forensic process that goes on where you're trying to reconstruct what life was like and even trying to understand perhaps what society was like and what people were thinking using those traces whilst all the time, you know, not, not having any written words to, to help you. But I, it is extraordinary how much we can tell. And also it's extraordinary how far back in time we can push it. So, um, you know, in terms, of a, in terms of a prehistoric human presence in Britain, uh, we, we can go back all the way now to, you know, nearly a million years ago uh, with evidence of, uh, of stone tools and also footprints as well uh, on the beaches in East Anglia. But if we're talking about burials, the the first burial that we have in Britain in in prehistory, so the very first burial in Britain, is that of the Red Lady of Paviland. And and Mm. that's the the grave that I choose to open the book with. But that does take us back more than 30,000 years uh, into the past. So it's quite astonishing, that depth of time. You know, it's, it's before the peak of the last ice age when ice sheets came down over Britain. So I think I think people are aware of that. I think, you know, people know that as you go back into prehistory, you're getting into the Pleistocene, you're getting into the Great Ice Age, and that the landscapes that we see around us today have been, you know, covered with ice from time to time, uh, or in the south, you know, they've, they've cycled between being tundra uh, and then being, you know, more open and um, sometimes even wooded. So, you know, we, we are talking about the Ice Age for a big chunk of that, that, that time in prehistory. Uh, but then uh, after the Ice Age, we're, we're coming out into the later bit of the Paleolithic, the Old Stone Age, and then to the Mesolithic when people start to settle down a bit more in the landscape. And then I think, you know, when I'm doing my talks and, uh, and engaging with the public, I'm, you know, people are people are pretty clued up actually about the kind of sequence of events. They know that you have the, you have the Stone Age and then you have the Bronze Age and then you have the Iron Age. And the transitions in and out of these are, are slightly different in, in, in different countries. Um, so you can't, it, I suppose to a large extent, the, the, the actual date at which the, for instance, the Stone Age stops and the, uh, and the Bronze Age or actually the Copper Age now flits in between the, the Stone Age and the Bronze Age, where, where that starts um, is based on obviously the, the objects that you're fi- finding and you're, you're never going to see the very beginnings of it. But also there's a, there's a theme of continuity um, so uh, we don't we don't see usually whole cultures exploding onto the scene um, overnight. Mm-hmm. We see a gradual kind of accumulation of changes, and then we go right. We're we're into the Iron Age now. Sometimes there is an explosion of culture, and that's a really interesting point that I unpick in the book as well. You mentioned earlier 
advances in science. And there are some truly spectacular things that we can find from these discoveries these days. Can you give us an insight of nowadays, if we get to a prehistoric grave and we find bones in it, what could we tell from those bones using cutting-edge science? Okay, so if I'm presented with a skeleton or I've just dug mm-hmm. up a skeleton, I can tell quite a lot actually just by looking at the the bones themselves, just by um, with the naked eye. And and I was amazed when I first started in this area of research because I came into it from a background as a as a medical doctor. And so when I first started learning the business of osteoarchaeology or biological anthropology uh, from the wonderful Juliet Rogers, who who is no longer with us at Bristol University. I I was just astonished at how much you could tell. You know, coming into this as a a medical doctor, I was thinking, you know, goodness me, it's just a skeleton. I can't ask this person anything about themselves or where it hurts or whatever. I can't um, do blood tests. There's so much I can't do, which I would do as a doctor. Um, and and I suppose because I was a doctor, my fascination is with disease in, in ancient remains. Uh, but actually, there's a lot you can tell. So bone does respond to disease if, you, if you're ill for a certain period of time. And there are some diseases which are very characteristic in the way that they affect bones, things like syphilis and TB, for instance. And then um, one of my uh, obsessions has been arthritis, so looking, looking for signs of osteoarthritis. And that's very easy to see on the surfaces of joints with the naked eye. You see little tiny holes on the surface of the uh, of the joint. You see um, sometimes if the cartilage is completely worn away in a joint and two pieces of bone have been rubbing together, then you see um, a kind of ivory, shiny texture on the surface of the bone. We call it ebonation. Uh, so we can look at patterns of, uh, of arthritis through time, for instance, and you can also look at teeth, obviously, and um, we we see that people in the past suffered from dental disease just as we do today. Um, so the types of things you might see are um, calculus building up on the teeth. So that's when plaque becomes mineralized, and that can lead then to gum disease and recession of the bone around the tooth. And, and so eventually the tooth falls out and the tooth is lost and the bone heals over. It, it, the socket is resorbed completely. We see evidence of abscesses. Um, although I suppose what I should say is that compared with our teeth today, most prehistoric people had much better teeth uh, because <laughs> they didn't have quite such a starchy, sugary diet as we do. I mean, I don't think they brush their teeth as fastidiously as we do, um, but their teeth are nevertheless in you know, usually a very good condition. Um, so there's a lot you can tell by uh, looking at the bones on the surface. And then, of course, you can employ techniques like um, like radiography. So you can use x-rays to look at bones. And that gives you more clues um, to hidden features of the bones, for instance. Um, you can also use um, computer tomography. So again, using x-rays, but um, CT scanning the bones. And um, we've, we've done some work at the University of Bristol using uh, micro CT scanning, which I'm actually describing uh, one project in the in the follow-up book to, to Ancestors um, right now because that involves Roman infant bones. So it's just into um, the historical period um, where my colleague Kate Robson-Brown uh, in the Archaeology and Anthropology Department at Bristol uh, did some micro-CT scanning of infant bones where we'd found cut marks and we were able to see that the cuts in those bones, which were just visible to the naked eye, uh, were V-shaped and cross-section. We were essentially able to um, virtually slice up the bone um, with the with the micro CT scanner. We could see that they were V-shaped, V-shaped and cross-section. They'd been made by a 
by uh, probably a metal knife. Um, and that also they'd been made in antiquity because we could see sediment in the bottom of those cuts. So there are ways of analyzing bones, you know, where without cutting them up, but you're still analyzing them at a kind of microscopic level. And then there's lots of uh, chemical techniques that you can use. So you can look at um, the constitution of bones and teeth and look at ratios of different elements in bones and teeth, which are really useful in terms of telling you where um, somebody grew up, for instance, or where somebody spent um, the, the last decade or so of their lives. And, um, you know, our, our bodies are made out of our surroundings. <laughs> you know, our bodies are, are constantly in um, in communication, I suppose, with, with, with our surroundings. You, you make your body through what you consume. Mm. And um, so there are, there are signatures of the, the landscapes that we grew up in written particularly into teeth. So in, in tooth enamel, which is laid down in childhood, you are, you are incorporating certain types of oxygen, for instance, and certain types of strontium in various ratios that we can then analyze and then say, right, where do those ratios exist in terms of the geology of, the, of Britain or, or further afield? So we can use those kinds of um, what we call stable isotope studies to um, ascertain where somebody grew up and, and maybe they've been buried in a different place from, from the area they grew up in. So that's, that's one of the kind of, I suppose, relatively recent advances. And then what a lot of the book is about is the ability to extract DNA from <clears throat> ancient bones and to sequence it. And yeah. this is something which is, has just come on in leaps and bounds. When you consider that the, the first human genome was fully sequenced in 2000, and then since then, the ability, first of all, to extract DNA from very ancient bones, but also then to, um, to, to work out how, how fragments of DNA, because you're, you're going to be sequencing lots of um, separate fragments of DNA to build that up into a genome. Um, all of the um, technology to do that has, has come on in leaps and bounds as well. And in the book, I describe the beginning of a project, mm. which is running at the moment at the Crick Institute, by, uh, run by Pontus Skoglund and his lab, where the aim is to read a thousand ancient British genomes. I wanted to ask you about the Thousand Ancient Genomes Project um, because it's clear that you're really you're really passionate about it. Why do you think that it is so exciting? What do you hope that it might reveal or that we might be able to learn from it? What we've been doing with DNA in the past has been either analysing um, specific sections of it, so perhaps looking at mitochondria mitochondrial DNA, which is a which is not inside the nucleus of your cells, but is contained in mitochondria, and Y chromosome DNA, which can give us a little bit of an idea about how um, males and females were moving around in the past. But it's only a very tiny bit of DNA. So with whole genomes, we're able to um, look for um, rare variants, for instance, which might give us clues as to when particular groups of people have uh, have come into Britain. Um, and obviously the movement goes the other way as well. And sometimes we might actually be able to try to reconstruct something about these people as well. So for instance, I talk about Cheddar Man in the, in the book mm -hmm. and the analysis of, uh, of his genome. And there's a lot of probability built into this, but uh, the, the geneticists think that it's quite probable that he had fairly dark skin and blue eyes so quite unusual looking. So being able to find that out from a skeleton just seems utterly extraordinary. 
So there's a lot of information. There's also information about kinship, about um, relationships between different individuals. And that's been quite profound when it comes to looking at, for instance, um, the the communal burials that we find inside Neolithic chambered tombs. And there are a lot of different theories about what those chambered tombs are about, whether they're about anonymizing the dead and those those people represent um people from a you know across a whole community or whether they were perhaps uh, effectively family vaults and from some of the genetic analyses that that have been carried out fairly recently we, we are getting hints of this idea of them being used for families so we're seeing familial relationships between different individuals um, where their you know their their DNA has been sequenced so for instance a father and a daughter from Primrose Grange in Ireland um, and also in Ireland, a father and a son buried in two separate tombs, but but fairly close to each other. So perhaps we're looking at um, branches of the same family um, very close in the landscape. Um, and even at Newgrange, um, an incestuous relationship. So an individual, a man buried at Newgrange, who is either um, the incestuous son of a parent and a child or of two siblings. So we can see that in his DNA. So we're, see- we're seeing some quite extraordinary details um, some of which may not have been, uh, you know, public knowledge to the people in that community even. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned there that one of the things they're looking at is migration. And historians and archaeologists love to debate about migration and its impact on Britain over time. What do you think that this might reveal? Do you think this might put a, an end to these debates? I don't think we'll end the debates, but it's a it's a, an important strand of new evidence that certainly has the potential to settle some questions. It's not, it's not a kind of panacea. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not going to answer everything. And I think what we'll see happening is that um, ancient DNA will help us answer many longstanding uh, questions about mobility and migrations in the past. But then actually we're left with a, with a lot more questions at the end of it. And so we'll still, it's not as though ancient DNA somehow supersedes archaeology it doesn't at all it's a tool for archaeologists to use and it will help us see the picture more clearly but it is quite a disruptive technology I mean I mm. think it's I think it's probably as disruptive as radiocarbon dating when that came along um, that you know suddenly archaeologists were able to pin actual dates absolute dates on on organic material whereas in the past they'd had to um, do mostly relative dating um so i think that i think ancient dna is probably going to have a well i think it already is having a having a similar kind of disruptive effect in 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 archaeology and you kind of see that playing out i mean it's quite interesting um to turn our cultural anthropological gaze on ourselves now and and look at how this technology you know so much of what i'm talking about is is how um you know new technologies like metalworking it that would have been a disruptive technology when it appeared back in the copper age and the bronze age uh, and here we've got an example of another disruptive technology which is is going to change um how both disciplines work in fact and the questions that both disciplines are are asking but I think that, um, I mean, cert- there have certainly been some instances of um, geneticists treading on toes, shall we say, mm-hmm. um, delicately. No, they <laughs> haven't been delicate. So there's been a perception um, from some archaeologists that, that some geneticists have kind of waded in to mm-hmm. very long-standing debates, you know, centuries-long debates in archaeology and have just gone, well, you've been arguing about this for ages, we've got the answer now. 
And um, and not surprisingly, the archaeologists have said, well, hang on a minute. I think you need to learn a bit about archaeology and the kinds of questions we're asking first before you just come in all brazenly saying, and here's the answer. So um, I think that we're seeing that really well in terms of the Thousand Ancient Genomes project. So we're seeing a a really uh, beautifully collaborative project uh, between geneticists and archaeologists and um, engaging, you know, the Pontus Skoglund is is engaging with probably now hundreds of archaeologists up and down the breadth breadth and length of the UK and, you know, asking them what they want to know. Uh, you know what? Are, what are their burning questions, and 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 what can he help them with? Some things he won't be able to help them with. Some things will be on will be beyond the limits of of ancient DNA to to answer. Um, but uh, you know, at the same time, he's interested in looking at mi- migration and mobility in Britain, and there'll be lots of uh, very discrete discrete questions about individual sites, which which he'll be able to collaborate mm-hmm. with those archaeologists on. And also, in fact, um, you know, within his team, there are people like um, Tom Booth who is actually a geneticist and an archaeologist. And I think that helps when we've got these two disciplines mm. that feel quite separate. We've already got people who actually have a fit in both camps, who are both archaeologically and genetically trained. So I think that's a really powerful way of bringing these two disciplines together, which is what we've got to do. I mean, that we've got mm. to, to capitalise and maximise the, the power of ancient genetics to, um, to help with archaeological conundrums. And that's the way we'll do it. Well, that's I think is one of the most interesting aspects of the book is n- not only the sites themselves, but how the art of archaeology has developed over time. And you talk um, in the book about the people who first made some of these discoveries. So people like William Buckland, Pitt Rivers, um, Richard Goff. And I was just interested in who you found some of those most interesting, colourful characters and how they reflected ideas from their own time onto the finds that they made. Yeah, so uh, one of the people that I got quite obsessed with, as you'll probably be aware, <laughs> is, um, is Pitt Rivers. And, you know, as, a, as an early archaeologist, uh, he came up with some really, really interesting ideas about how cultures had changed and evolved over time. And he was, he was interested in, in collecting. He was interested in, in cataloguing and understanding what was happening in different periods through time. Uh, but he was also interested in, in how those transitions happened. And he was very influenced by evolutionary theory. So he was, he was thinking about ideas that were coming through from biology in the 19th century and then wondering how those might apply to culture. It sounds very familiar with what we were talking about just a minute ago with the kind of cross-pollination of disciplines. Yeah, it does. It does. And um, and he starts to think about whether the origins of, uh, of new cultures might be linked to the, the movement of people. So, for instance, he has a theory that um, the, the Bronze Age people uh, represent, um, uh, they obviously have a new culture um, compared with the with Neolithic people, but is that, um, are, are they new people? Are, you know, have they just picked up this culture? Perhaps, um, you know, maybe just a, a few people have travelled and that they've picked up this, this culture from a few people and then that culture has taken hold and has spread. So a kind of idea of cultural diffusion. Or, you know, have they ha- has there been a, a population replacement effectively where they, that Bronze Age culture is actually coming with a whole load of new people? And he suggests on the basis of skull measuring 
that that might have happened. So he does some he does some craniometry, uh, particularly looking at skulls that were found on his on his own land in Cranbourne Chase, and says, "Look, I think I can see a difference between the Neolithic skulls, the shape of the Neolithic skulls, and the shape of the Bronze Age skulls." So he's kind of trying to do with skulls what we would now do with DNA. So now we would now we would take the DNA and say, well, you know, is there a difference in that DNA? Is there enough of a difference to say that actually we think we've got a lot of people coming over in the Bronze Age and that the populations that were there in the Neolithic have been largely replaced? And what's astonishing is that um, the evidence that is coming through at the moment does suggest that. So um, we've got a lot more work to do, but certainly um, the indications are that we've got um, quite a big population replacement happening in the Bronze Age. So when we see the beaker culture uh, emerging in Britain, that is coming with um, a, a new group of people. The, the Neolithic people haven't completely disappeared, um, but there's a, there's a really profound turnover uh, of population. So now we know that, then you start to think about uh, what that means in terms of the contact between these two groups of people with their different cultures and how much contact, how much communication there was between, between those different groups. And what we can see, what, you know, we need to, then we need to look at it site by site, country by country, site by site, and look at what was happening in a really fine-grained way at different places. Because in some places it might be that we have... Um, you know, the two communities existing side by side, but but essentially operating a sort of a sort of apartheid for a while before they merge together. And then in other places we might see a, a swift merge. So it's getting, I mean, it's just really fascinating the, the level of detail that you can get into. But what it what it does, I think, this this new technology is is makes us um is makes us look at archaeological theory because Archaeological theory over time has 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 changed a lot. And I do think of uh, probably um, probably all scientific disciplines. Archaeology is probably the most introspective in that way. It's very aware of its own philosophy, um, mm-hmm. which I think is um, extremely extremely useful. And I think that other areas of science could learn a lot from that because, of course, yeah. we always have. There's always some kind of philosoph- philosophy that we have in the back of our minds when mm. we approach a particular. Um, set of observations or a particular problem. And I think that archaeology has been very good at being self-aware about yeah. those, about that philosophy and about preconceptions in a way. And I think where we're at now, and especially with these new technologies coming in, um, it encourages us to try to move away from having preconceptions. So try to look mm-hmm. at the try to look at the evidence um, in isolation to begin with. And then try to kind of build it up and uh, and build up a bigger picture, but it is no, it is interesting. I think I think that philosophically we probably are moving into a into a different way of at least not not doing archaeology, but thinking about archaeology now. Yeah, it sounds like archaeologists are going to have stuff to keep them busy for a long time to come. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But this one was this one was intact, standing up, and the the individual, the man, was buried in in the chariot as you as you kind of expect, and he was in a kind of crouched position to fit him into it. But the other utterly extraordinary thing about this is that there were two ponies in the grave as well, and um, not only that, but these um, two skeletal ponies were standing up. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. 
you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Each of the chapters in your book looks at a site and it gives you a real sense of place. You take the reader with you to this prehistoric site. So I just wanted to ask you about some of those sites. What are some of the most evocative or atmospheric sites that you were able to visit that, you know, still have a real sense of something special happening there today? Well, I think that, you know, some some places you go to and there's nothing there today. Um, so you're, you're kind of left, um, I I suppose you, you, you feel that there's something special about the place because you, because you know about the archeology. span And for me, that, um, gives me a real sense of being kind of rooted in the landscape. So particularly going to places like Paviland Cave and, uh, Mm. and Paviland Cave is one of the places that I really, really wanted to include in the very first series of Coast on BBC Two. And when the producer said, you know, what are the what are the places that you think definitely should be in this series? I said, Pavilion Cave, you know, it's the, it's the earliest burial in Britain. Um, and I met up with my friend and colleague, Paul Pettit, um, on a beautiful sunny day to, to go and uh, walk down the cliffs at, at Pavilion, just on the Gower, and, um, uh, and go and make our way to Pavilion Cave. And you know now it is it's quite an epic cave. I mean, it's it looks out over the over the Severn estuary. It's a big teardrop shaped entrance, uh, but it's you know it's been excavated. So um, you're not in there to look at the to look at the archaeological remains. You're you're there to look at the landscape and think about how different that landscape might have been thirty four thousand years ago when um, the Red Lady, who was a man, uh, yeah. of, of Pavland, was was buried there. 
but I do think that um I do think that archaeology imbues the landscape with a kind of it's the, it's the depth of human existence isn't it and the thinking of all the people that have been in those places mm-hmm. before us and although this book is a lot about genetics it's not about trying to trace um genetic links between us now and 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 people in the past because you know once you get back into prehistory those are those are not terribly meaningful anyway and i'm i'm really um keen to say in the book that you know mm. these ancestors belong to everybody you don't have to have a direct genetic link with with the red lady of paviland or with the amesbury archer to you know think about what the lives of those individuals were like and think about the landscapes that they lived in um so i think it's quite an egalitarian approach to ancestry and the landscape that i'm after yeah. you're you know you're here i'm if, when I visit Pavlan Cave, I'm there as a human in the 21st century, thinking about the human experience of somebody who lived 34,000 years ago, mm. one one human to another human. Yeah, um, I actually wanted to ask you a bit about the Amesbury Archer because he is one of the most fascinating figures. Um, of course, he was found near Amesbury, which is in itself near-ish Stonehenge, and that is coloured the way that a lot of people have spoken about him. What are some of the debates about his identity and what do you think that his um, grave can tell us about the time? Well, it is a it is a stunning grave. It's, it's still um, the most richly furnished copper age grave in Britain um and and I think in Europe as well I mean it's it's absolutely stunning so this this individual this this man was buried with um almost a hundred different objects in his grave and it was a um a timber lined grave and in that in that grave he's buried with um wrist guards for um what we presume are wrist guards for archery um and there are lots and lots of flints some of them are arrowheads, which gives him his name. Uh, there are copper knives and there are five bell-shaped beakers in there with him. So this is this is the kind of classic um, beaker package. And um, he, you know, he looks like somebody who is who is certainly special in some way, you know, high status because of the the way that he's buried and the number of objects that are that are buried with him. And um, there are there are also other other graves very very close by. So um, the the burial of the Boscombe Bowman, um, which again are, um, relate to the, a similar kind of period, and and they are close to Stonehenge. So you know you start thinking, are there links between you know these individuals and Stonehenge? And there may be, but we'll never be able to prove that. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about the Amesbury Archer is that. Um, the analysis of uh, uh, of his stabilizer tapes shows that he's not a local. Mm-hmm. Shows that he grew up somewhere around the Alps uh, and then ended up in ended up in Amesbury. And so, I mean, I think I think um, graves like his show us just how wide these connections were across the landscape and the distances that people were traveling. I mean, I think sometimes we think that people in antiquity are only you know maybe traveling to the next village and that's about as far as they went. But no, we've got we've got people who are traveling, you know, sometimes hundreds of miles in in a lifetime, and um, he's right at the dawn of of the Copper Age. So um, those are the those are the kind of facts about him. Then you start to speculate about who exactly he was. You know, are we looking at some kind of Bronze Age shaman or magician? You know, what did people think of these people who had the ability to extract metal out of stone? 
I mean, mm. it must have been amazing um, to see that and to see that, um, to see this new material, this completely new material um, emerging into cultures. Um, so yeah, he's a he's a very exciting burial, um, and he he absolutely had to be in the book. I think that those questions lead me on actually um, quite nicely to another question I have, which is, what are some of the most puzzling um, things that have been found, or or puzzling debates that people have had about some of these burials um, that argue archaeologists still are arguing over today? Well, I think now that we're starting to piece together a bit more about mobility and migrations and we'll you know that we're in it's still it's it's very early stages for this so it's so it's a very kind of exciting area of uh, of investigation but i think that as we start to piece this together the the questions about how culture then spreads um really come to the fore and and also um i think the realization that you know culture doesn't appear in one single package that actually um, you know the the origin of, uh, of of things like the Amesbury Archer's copper knives might be different from the origin of the idea behind his beakers, for instance. So you know we're seeing we're seeing lots of different ideas. You know wherever you are, I always think about it as ripples in a pond, and and the culture in this particular area in one particular area draws on ideas from lots of different cultures around you. So I think that kind of overly simplistic idea that you have one particular culture in one place and then it just spreads, you know, maybe east to west is the kind of tradition, isn't it? Um, the the light from the east. Um, we're, we're starting to really kind of break that apart now and, and see that actually ideas are traveling in, in lots of different directions. And in order to really understand that, we've got to have very, very well-dated sites um, mm-hmm. in order to see how those different aspects of culture come together and relate to each other. And I think that um, there are there are hints of uh, of really interesting uh, um, connections between material culture and other aspects of culture, particularly with these Copper Age and Bronze Age individuals, because we have got this link with the with the Amesbury Archie. You know, he, in his own lifetime, he's travelled from the Alps to to the UK. Um, other people in the Bronze Age, so there's a big there was a big project called the Beeper. Beaker People Project, which showed that there was um, quite a bit of mobility during the Bronze Age, but a lot of it was within Britain. Um, so, so yes, there's, there are connections with the near continent, of course there are, but there's also a lot of mobility going on within Britain. Um, but then as we go back further in time, we see the, the roots of the, um, the Beaker culture perhaps starting in Portugal. But then if we track it back further through the genetics, then we find that actually this this wave of uh, of expansion of a population merging with other populations along the way comes from the Pontic steppe. So it's a steppe population that expands across Europe from about five thousand years ago. And if we if we tie that up with a particular culture of the of the Pontic steppe, then that's expanding. Then this is this culture called Yamnaya. Um, so a culture where people um, were using pit graves, which is where the name comes from. And what we also think is happening is that those people are bringing a new set of languages into Europe. So um, this is a, an amazing kind of coming together of uh, ancient DNA, of genetics, of, uh, of archaeology, looking at material culture and linguistics, where we think that these people are spreading out of the Pontic steppe 
and um, bringing a different material culture, but also bringing um, different languages with them as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those kind of, I mean, when, when that paper came out, um, looking at the Yamnaya and those connections between linguistics and genetics and archaeology, I, d- I don't know if 20 years ago anyone would have ever, e- you know, even thought that that would have been possible to make mm-hmm. those kind of connections. So that's why it's so exciting at the moment. Is I just wanted to um, ask you a little bit about the Pocklington chari- chariot burial because it's so show-stopping really, isn't it? Why was that such an exciting find? And I wonder if you could describe it for us. Yeah, so the Pocklington chariot burial um, was um, discovered by map archaeology who'd been digging in the area um, for quite a while but so it was in 2016 um they discovered um a chariot burial which was um chariot burial of a, a of an adult man with um a with a with a chariot which was which was intact and standing and it's the first one that's been um that found like that in historical times, as in, you know, we've actually, the archaeologists have seen it. Um, there may have been, I mean, there were chariot burials discovered um, in the past that, that may have had intact chariots, but um, they weren't recorded. Um, so it's the first known intact chariot. Other chariot burials that have been found in recent times have tended to be dismantled. Mm. Um, so completely flat packed before being put in the grave. Um, but this one was this one was intact, standing up, and the the individual, the man, was buried in in the chariot, as you as you kind of expect, and he was in a kind of crouched position to fit him into it. But the other utterly extraordinary thing about this is that there were two ponies in the grave as well, and um, not only that, but these um, two skeletal ponies were standing up, which is just mind boggling, just unbelievable. So. Um, I talked to um, Paula Ware, who who was the lead archaeologist digging the site, and uh, Melanie Giles from from Manchester University, who, who's a consummate Iron Age expert about this. And we spent quite a long time kind of scratching our heads and thinking, how on earth did they get these ponies in? Are they winching dead ponies into the grave, or are they, uh, and then somehow supporting them, maybe putting piling up the soil underneath them, piling up the earth underneath them to support them in a standing position, or um, are they led into the grave? Um, and then killed in the grave. It's just, it, it is quite extraordinary. And and because it's such a feat, you kind of go, well, I, I don't know if we'll ever quite get to the bottom of how they did it. Um, but obviously it was extremely important mm. to have that uh, design, I suppose, in the grave, to have mm. that chariot looking as though it was just ready to be, to, yeah. to depart with the, with the ponies taking this dead man off to the, to the afterlife, presumably. I mean, if that's if that's what they believed in, we don't know they believed in an afterlife, but it looks like they're intending something uh, with that journey. And then what there was as well with that uh, grave was was evidence of uh, the funeral feast. So you get this impression of a, a of a funeral which is a, a great spectacle and is is definitely about show, is definitely about the status of that individual, but also, of course, what funerals are about is the status of the surviving family as well so um you know that that big show of uh of i suppose power and status um is is as much about the survivors as it is about the individual that's being buried and it looks like a big show that was also um a big feast so there are there are um animal bones in the in the grave and in particular 
a rack of ribs with a meat <laughs> hook still in it. That sounds like a good wake, doesn't it? <laughs> that was just extraordinary. Um, so this looks like parts of the feast that are being shared with this with this individual um, as he goes off to the afterlife, if he's if he's going off to the afterlife. Yeah. So yes, it's. I mean, it is it is an extraordinary extraordinary burial, and and these. Um, these Iron Age burials up in Yorkshire are, are very unusual because across a lot of the country in the Iron Age, we don't we don't see many burials. We see some burials down in Dorset, and then we see and then we see these um, very characteristic ones up in up in Yorkshire, um, and it's called the Arras culture, and that does have connections with the with the near continent. Um, so it may be that it's a, a particular group of people who have come with their uh, very very um uh definite style of uh, mm. a funeral with them so in these chariot burials and of the time would it primarily be men that are buried there uh, well no it's not always men uh so we can look at human skeletons and and say um whether they're male or female with with quite a high degree of accuracy if we're able to sex them some of them we have to just give up and say they're indeterminate um, but what we know is that some of these chariot burials very definitely have women in them, including um, the, the Wetwang um, chariot burial. So uh, that's interesting because I think antiquarians in the past would have very quickly jumped to a conclusion on the basis mm. of the, the style of the burial or perhaps artefacts that were buried with the body, as the Reverend Buckland did indeed with the, with the Red Lady of Pavland. You know, the name is stuck, but it's quite clearly a male skeleton. He didn't think it could possibly be a male because that that individual was buried with what looked to him like ivory jewellery. And, you know, as a 19th century antiquarian, he couldn't stomach the idea that a man might be buried with jewellery. But, you know, those kind of ideas still persist. So that in the in the Iron Age, when um, we find uh, we find burials with with swords, there's sort of the assumption that it's a man or if you find a burial with a mirror. There's an assumption that that's a woman, and um, and I talk a little bit about um, the need to um, get away from our own cultural lens again, and accept that there may have been much, there may have been many more diverse identities in the past than than perhaps we have today. You know, we we kind of think um, that we are, I don't know, that, that that our society and culture is normal in the way that it tends to have, for instance, we tend to have two genders. So I'm not talking about biological sex. I'm talking about gender, and we, you know, we tend to say, right, there are just two genders, um, and then and then some people raise their eyebrows when when somebody says, well, I don't feel like either one of those genders, or you know, I I, d- I don't fit into this binary pattern, um, and perhaps that's what we're seeing in the past is a much more diverse approach to identity. So that you know, certainly when you find an Iron Age burial and there has been one of these, it's got a sword and a mirror. That's telling you something quite interesting, I think, about identity in the past. Fascinating stuff. Um, so finally, I know that earlier you cautions, cautioned against trying to, you know, pin down some solid genealogy um, type link between us and these prehistoric people. But do you think that there is anything we can learn about ourselves by looking at prehistoric Britain? I think what we can learn from ourselves for, about ourselves by looking at prehistoric Britain is just how multicultural Britain has always been. And that what we see over time is many, many, many different groups of people coming to Britain. And of course, the movement would have been in the other way as well. We're not just, we're not just receiving people. People would have, would have crossed the North Sea and the Channel in both directions. And that all of those cultures 
uh, enrich each other. So I think that's probably um, the biggest lesson for us today. That was Alice Roberts. Her book, Ancestors, A Prehistory of Britain in Seven Burials, is available now, published by Simon & Schuster. I spoke to Alice for the July issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes features on the Black Death, the Cuban Missile Crisis, cricket in the British Empire and catastrophes that changed the world. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow with a final episode in our series on Britain's greatest prime ministers. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.